Well, good morning, Stone Creek. Good morning. Hey, before I even jump in, before I even look at what's over here, I just need to acknowledge and shout out my girl, Ramsey. Can we just give it up for Ramsey? Listen, if y'all don't know, like, I'm a student pastor. My name's Sean. Glad to see you, but like, I'm, I don't even matter. Ramsey is a senior in high school, and she just slayed that song. And like, this is just the beginning for her. So, man, I'm proud. I'm a proud person to know her. She is awesome. So, man, I'm super excited to be up here. Like I said, my name is uh, Sean Curry. I'm a student pastor here, and I'm excited to continue in, the, in this series called Mosaic. And I'm pumped because I get to preach the Sunday before Christmas Eve. I mean, like, come on. That's awesome. And like, so that just speaks so much to Stephen Gibbs because like that doesn't happen like I know that like I'm a student pastor I'm not supposed to be up here right now so I, praise God but like it's a good way to go Stephen Gibbs that just speaks to his leadership it's who he is like he develops young leaders it's the culture that he has built here and so I'm honored to to lead under him so can we just can we just give it up for Stephen really fast come on Stephen you're awesome I mean, hey, before I dive in, I have an ask for you guys right off the top. You ready? Didn't know, you didn't know that you were going to get asked to do something, but right away, I have an ask for you. This morning, we're going to be a little bit more responsive, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to respond. So when I say something that you like, what I want for you to do is say, that's good, or okay, something like that, okay? Something like that. If God does something in your heart, like moves in your soul, I just want you to go, praise God, praise God. Right, like that's, that's, what I want, that's what I want from you. And, and if nothing else, like if my words mean nothing to you, if you're like, yeah, I don't get anything out of the words that God's given him. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, like you believe that this word, the word of God is perfect. And so you should at least clap for that. Okay. You should at least celebrate the word of God. So let's practice. Can we just be responsive really quick? Come on. Go ahead. There we go. All right. I like it. That's good. That's good. That's good. Man, so we've been in this series called Mosaic and I've loved this series. How many of y'all have loved this series? There we go, giving you chances. This is good. This is good. Uh, I've loved this series. What, we, what our goal in this series has been as a church is to look at different sides of who Jesus is in order to understand what the fullness of our God looks like. So that's, what's, that's what I love about Jesus, right? Jesus, there's so many sides to who he is that regardless of what season of life we're in, where we found our, find ourselves, where we're walking through, like Jesus can relate because that's the kind of God that he is. And so far in, in this series, man, we've seen how Jesus is the son of man man. We've seen how Jesus says that he is rabbi. We've seen how he is the lamb of God, how he is Lord, how he is the friend of sinners. And last week, Stephen talked about how Jesus is Emmanuel. And I'm super excited to continue in uh, uh, this series today and look at another side of who Jesus says that he is. Now I'm pumped because it is almost Christmas time, and I love Christmas. Like, Christmas is my favorite holiday by far, not close. Like, if you're a Christian in the room and your favorite holiday is Halloween, like, you're weird. I'm just going to be really honest. Like, you're wrong, you're weird, and, like, choose Christmas. Not just because of Jesus, like, obviously because of Jesus, but also it's just better. It's just amazing. There's something awesome about Christmas time. One of my favorite things in Christmas is Christmas Eve services here at Stone Creek's Shameless Plug. So if you haven't signed up, make sure to register because here's the thing. I've gotten an opportunity opportunity to be kind of a part of the behind the scenes process of planning the content of this Christmas Eve. And like, can I tell you, like, I'm not just saying this. I know churches say this a lot. I promise you, I'm not just saying this. Like you, you will never experience a Christmas Eve service like what we're about to do on Friday, on Friday morning and afternoon. And so make sure to come, make sure to invite your friends because we're going to show you the real Jesus and the real meaning of why this is such a powerful, powerful day. You do not want to miss it. Make sure to sign up for that. But I love Christmas. And Christmas, crazy enough, is only six days away. 
Six days away, like less than a week. Uh, when Ryan said that we haven't wrapped presents, it hit me because I haven't. So I need to do that. And maybe some of you need to join me today. But Christmas is only a few days away. And like I said, I love Christmas. And so one thing I love about Christmas is lights. Anybody like Christmas lights? All right, all right, there we go. I love Christmas lights. And so uh, I, I, I'm in a new house uh, this year. And so I decided I'm going to hang Christmas lights from my, from my roof, which was terrifying. I'm just trying not to fall off a ladder because I'm not good at like anything to do with house renovation. So I'm up on a ladder putting lights up. And I had this thought in this moment of like, we do weird things around Christmas time, right? Like, think about it. Think about the things that we do around Christmas time. Like, if I, if I say, hey, we're going to do this any other time of the year, I am weird. You don't think I'm cool. You're like, you're a weirdo. Stay away from me. But at Christmas time, all of a sudden, weird things can become socially acceptable, don't they? Like, let me, let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about it. Like, think about socks for a second, okay? Think about socks. When you leave your socks around the house, like your parents or your wife, like they get mad at you, right? They're like, why are the socks on the nightstand? Like, why are they there, right? But all of a sudden at Christmas, we take socks and we hang them from a fireplace and put chocolate in them, right? Like that's weird, but it becomes socially acceptable. Or or maybe another one is like you go to Lowe's or for some like bougie people, you go to Scottsdale Farms and you spend $900 on a dead tree to put a dead tree inside of your house and, and wrap it in lights and like glittery ornaments just to look at it and go, uh, this is Christmas, you know? Or maybe for you, like, I don't know about, I don't know about this, but for you, maybe you have an elf in your house and it's on a shelf. Like, that's a weird thing on its own. And then, like, we just say, oh, yeah, this is cute when elves wake up at night and run around our house rampant. Like, that's a horror movie. That's not, that's not a Christmas tradition, but we make it socially acceptable. Or my favorite one, like, all of a sudden, at Christmas time, trespassing becomes okay right? Like we walk onto other people's lawns and we stand in front of their doors and sing as loud as we can off key and expect them to open the door and go, you're doing great. Great. Merry Christmas. And we call it caroling, right? Like we have all of these things around the Christmas time where that can become weird, but we don't even ask ourselves why we do them or why we believe the things that we believe. It's just because it becomes part of the tradition of Christmas. And this morning, I wonder if we do the same thing with Jesus, but I wonder if there are, there are moments in the Christmas season where we look at Jesus and all of a sudden he just becomes part of the traditions that we've become so accustomed to. And even outside of the Christmas season, I think sometimes we look at Jesus and maybe, just maybe, we forget about the power that's actually behind his name. We forget about the power that is actually true about who he is. See, the part of the mosaic of the person of Jesus that I want to look at today is that Jesus says that he is son of God. Son of God. So often, like many of us, like we would say, yeah, I believe Jesus is the son of God. But when's the last time we took a step back and actually asked ourselves, what does that mean? Like, what could that mean for me? Like, if that's true, what does it mean? Like many of us, like we, we have looked at Jesus being the son of God and it's just become a cliche in church. It's just become a cliche in our faith, and we've missed out on the power that's behind us. Like, if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, uh, maybe you've heard the verse John 3.16, right? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Like, this is a powerful, powerful verse, but so many of us so often water it down to Christian t-shirts and Tim Tebow's cheeks. You know what I mean? Like, we we have this life-saving power that's in these words And Jesus being son of God, but so easily we can water it down and forget the magnitude of what that actually means. So why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus says that he is son of God? 
What does it mean for us? What does it change? How many of y'all are uh, fans of crime shows in the room this morning? Yeah? Okay. Okay. This is a moment to respond. I'm giving you chances. This is good. Moments to respond. Crime shows. So listen, when I was growing up, my dad, uh, he loved crime shows. Okay. And so he invited me into watching these crime shows and Law and Order was the main one that we watch. Any Law and Order fans in the house? Okay. So you know the dun-dun, like that's that, that ring in your, in your mind. The questionable parenting decision to let me watch it when I was like five years old with him, but like I watched Law and Order growing up, and so if you've ever seen a crime show or Law and Order, man, you know how trials work, right? You know how, what a courtroom setting looks like in the middle of a trial. They call witnesses, they examine evidence in order to see if the defendant who's been put on trial is guilty or not guilty of what they've been accused of. And this morning, what I want to do is to go back when Jesus originally makes this claim that he is the son of God. And I want to examine how people respond to that claim and what it changed. And so in a second, we're going to go back to the scene of the crime, as you could call it. I mean, this, this takes place in the book of John. Now, let me tell you a little bit about John before we dive in. See, John is one of the disciples of Jesus, okay? So there's two Johns. It's a little confusing. You got John the Baptist, and then you got John the disciple, okay? So John the disciple wrote the book of John, and his entire goal throughout the book of John is for, to help under, people understand and to make people believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's the whole point of his gospel. He consistently points back to different moments when Jesus says he is the Son of God, and he says, over and over again, hey, Jesus is the Son of God. And John is an eyewitness of Jesus. Think about it. An eyewitness is somebody who spends a lot of time, like they are close proximity to what is happening. He believes in Jesus, and he believes he's the Son of God. He's, he's this eyewitness of the report. But he talks about it all throughout, like even from the very beginning. John 1, verses 1 through 2, it says, in the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and, the, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. God. He talks about Jesus. We already read John 3.16. So over and over and over again, John talks about Jesus being the Son of God. He believed it. But there were so many people throughout the ministry of Jesus who didn't not only not believe it, but they disagreed with it and they hated that he said it. And so I wanna, what I want to do is I want to look at their perspective a little bit today. What I want to do is look through the lens of, of the people that accuse Jesus. And to do that, we need to go back to the first moment where he says that he is the Son of God. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open, up, open them up to John 10. John 10, and we're going to start in verse 22. It says, at, the, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. And then in this verse, he makes the claim in verse 30, I and the Father are one. So Jesus is at, I like that, Jesus is at the Feast of Dedication, 
right, to the Feast of Dedication. This is also called the Festival of Lights. And what they're doing is they're celebrating the miracle of the menorah in the Jewish faith, okay? And so what, what this what looks like for us today, what this holiday is called today is Hanukkah. Okay, so it's kind of ironic, right? Like Jesus, the sinner, the reason for Christmas is just chilling at a Hanukkah party, okay? That's where this is taking place in this moment. And at this party, the Jews come up to Jesus and they ask him plainly, hey, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? And what this means, what they're really asking is, hey, are you the guy that we've been waiting hundreds of years for? Are you the Savior? Are you the answer? Are you the fulfillment of all the prophecies? Are you God? Are you the Christ? And Jesus in this moment, he kind of indirectly answers. Like if you read the Bible, you notice he does that a lot. It's kind of frustrating sometimes, but he does it a lot. He indirectly answers by showing them that through faith, they can have him as a shepherd of the sheep. He compares himself to a shepherd. And there's another place in the book of John where he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. So what he's saying is that through faith, you can become a sheep that Jesus as the shepherd will flock towards life away from death and away from danger. And in this moment, he's saying, yes, I I am, I am the Christ without directly saying that he is the Christ. But then he says a line that shakes the room. He says a line that shakes the souls of the Jews that are listening and makes everyone say silent, get silent and go, what did he just say? He says, I and the Father are one. What he's saying is he's the Son of God, but he's also saying that he's God. Right? It's kind of confusing. Like he's the son of God. He's God. What, is, what does that look like? See, in our faith, we believe in something called the Trinity, okay? So we believe in a triune God. We believe that there are three persons who make up the fullness of God. And these three persons are God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And together they make up the fullness of God. And Jesus in this moment is, do, is, just, is claiming that he is God. And not only is this offensive to them. Now, this is an outrage for the Jews in this time. And look how they respond. It shows it in verse 31. It says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. See, in Jewish tradition, Jewish law the Jews, when they, when they believed that somebody was guilty of blasphemy, the sentencing for that crime was death by stoning. So what they would do is they'd pick up rocks and throw them at people until they died. Like, that sounds brutal. And in this moment, the Jews begin to pick up stones at this Hanukkah party to start throwing them at Jesus because they're believing that he's not only guilty, he's not, they're not only offended that he says he's God, but they believe he's guilty of blasphemy, which is like a direct uh, lack of reverence for God. In this moment, they accuse him of blasphemy. And one thing you need to know about the Jewish people at the time it's like they believed so much, like, in the, the reverence of God. They had such a fear of God that they wouldn't use his name. They wouldn't use the name God. They wouldn't use the name Yahweh. Instead, what they would do is they would say other names for God. And Jesus, in this moment, not only says the name God, but he says he is God. It's, it's fully opposite of where they are comfortable being. And they're offended. And they say, hey... You're guilty of blasphemy. And this is how Jesus responds. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? 
If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent to this world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? So these verses can get a little confusing because what Jesus is doing is he's actually stepping into how the Jews, Jewish leaders of the day like to communicate. So what you need to know about the Jewish leaders of the day is they loved to debate. They loved to argue. Like some of you, you're kind of you're like, oh, I like to debate. I kind of like to argue. And what he, Jesus is doing in this moment, he's like, okay, you want to debate? I'll step into this debate. Let me re- win really fast, okay? So what he does is he refers back to uh, this, this book um, called the book of Psalms. He refers back to a passage in that book. And what he knows uh, and what we need to know is that the Jewish leaders, they had the entire Old Testament memorized, okay? So when he brings up the word of God, he's saying, hey, I'm bringing up what you have already proclaimed to believe in to show you that actually what I'm doing, if it's true, is not blasphemy. In Psalm 82, 6, this is the verse that he references. It says, you are gods with a lowercase g, sons of the most high, all of you. See, Psalm 82 is, refers to God's leaders as small g gods, as in they execute the plans for God's purpose and for his people. So Jesus' point by pointing back to the psalm is, hey, I'm the fulfillment of that. I am the son of God, the one son of God that God was pointing to through that scripture. And if it's true, if I am the son of God, then there's no way I can be guilty of blasphemy. Your word says it. But he makes his case even stronger by saying this in verse 37. He says, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. What he's saying here is this. Look at my works. Look at my works. Don't put my words to the test. Don't just stop at my words. Go, go look at my works. Look what I do. Look how I live. Judge my claim off of my works. And if they're the works of the Father, if they're the works of God, then what I say is true. I'm the Son of God. If they're not, okay, I'm guilty of blasphemy. He puts his words to the test by challenging the Jews to, hey, take a step back and go look at my works. So what the Jews are trying to do in this moment is to make it seem like Jesus is not the Son of God. Because what they know to be true is if he is the Son of God, man, it changes everything. And church, can I tell you that if Jesus is not the Son of God, there's no point in being here today. And if Jesus is not the Son of God, everything we're doing up on this stage, man, it's just a show. It's just a free show to come and experience. There's no reason to stay if he's not the Son of God. But if he is the Son of God, it changes everything. I mean, if he is the son of God, it changes the way we live. If he is the son of God, it changes the way we worship. If he is the son of the God, it changes the way we give. If he is the son of God, it changes the way we parent. It changes the way we approach marriage. It changes the way we approach school. If he's the son of God, it changes everything. So the question is, is he the son of God? Or is he guilty of blasphemy? For us, what I want for us to do in the rest of our time is to examine some evidence to look at his works and look back just like he challenged the Jewish leaders of the day to do. To look back at his works and say, okay, let's ask the question, are these the works of God? Because if they are, it's got to be true. He's the son of God. And the first work I want to look at happens in the book of Matthew. 
See, in Matthew 8, uh, Jesus is approached by a leper. And if you don't know anything about leprosy in the Bible, a leper is someone who is deemed by their community to be unclean. Like, so much so that, that when, like, think about this for a second. This is crazy. So much so that when people would come up to, to, up to me, if I was a leper, I would have to yell out loud about myself, unclean, 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 so that they would turn around and walk the other way so they couldn't be infested by me. Can you imagine the mental state lepers had to be in? Can you imagine how isolated they felt? How much of an outcast they felt like? Like, talk about depression. They had to be a part of it. Man, they had to question, like, why am I even living? No one can even get near me. But this moment, this instance in Matthew 8, a leper sees Jesus. And if he sees anybody else, the leper knows, like, he has to run the other way. But something happens where he's heard about Jesus, he's heard about the power that Jesus has, and he runs towards Jesus. And Jesus runs towards him. That's what's different. And Jesus, and this man comes up to Jesus, and this is what happens in Matthew 8, verse 2 through 3. It says, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. See, what happens here is that Jesus, he he turns this outcast into an insider. He turns an outcast into an insider. He redefines this man's identity. Think about it. This man, man, he's identified as lonely. He's identified as unclean. He's identified as gross. He's identified as don't get near him. He's identified as don't come near me. And now all of a sudden, Jesus has not only made him clean, he's shifted and and revolutionized this man's identity. He took him from being an outcast on the outside of town to say, hey, no, 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 through me, you can be an insider in the kingdom of God. And then what he does is he sends this man back into his town to be around the people, to show the miracle of who he says he is. And I got to wonder, like, some of us maybe today identify with the leper. Maybe we feel like an outcast this Christmas season. Maybe we feel like we're on the outside of our family. Maybe we're an outcast to our old friend groups. We're an outcast in that relationship. Maybe we're living on the outside of our purpose. And can I tell you that this morning, today, Jesus is looking at you with the same offer, saying, hey, I can make you clean. I can give you a fresh start. Let me help you become an insider in the kingdom of God. You don't have to live as outcasts. That's not the identity I have for you. My identity for you is insider in the kingdom. It's available for you today. That's the first work. That's the first work. And can we just agree only God can do that? Only God can do that. So we're one for one. Next work I want to look at actually comes back into the book uh, of, of John and John 4. And uh, let me set the tone for you. Jesus and his disciples are walking on a journey to the city of Galilee. Okay, and there's a lot of different ways that they could have gotten to the city of Galilee. But there's one way that the Jewish people of the day would have never gone. And it was this route that went through the city of Samaria. Okay, because what the Jewish people of the day believed is they, they hated the Samaritans. They hated them because the Jewish people, man, they were, they were fully Jewish. But the Samaritans were, were half Jewish and half Gentile. And so the Jews would look at the Samaritans and be like, they're not worthy. I don't want to be near them. I hate them. Get them away from me. And so even the disciples of Jesus, because they're from Jewish descent, are uncomfortable with the fact that Jesus decides to take that route. 
See, Jesus knew that this was a longer route. He knew that he wasn't supposed to go there, but he also knew that there was a woman who needed to hear from him. And so he takes the route from a journey to Galilee through the city of Samaria, and he stops at this well to get a drink. And there's a lot of what would happen in, this, in the day is like the, these women would go to this well in the morning to draw water for their family and for whatever they need to do, and they'd go back to their town. But this was the afternoon, so there should have been no one at the well. But Jesus knew that there would be. And this woman comes up to the well because she knows that she doesn't go in the, in the morning because she, the city has forgotten her. They don't like her. They put her on an outcast. And we see in just a second why. Because Jesus comes up to her and he starts to talk to her. And he says, hey, get me a drink. She says, me? Me get you a drink. And then, do you know who I am? And he goes, oh, I know who you are. He knows everything about who she is. And he, at first he calls out her sin. He calls out her mistakes. He says, hey, can you go get your husband? She says, I don't have a husband. He said, yeah, I know you have five. Right? He calls out her sin, but he doesn't leave her there. Then he says, hey, let me tell you about how to worship me. Let me tell you about how I'm revolutionizing worship. And in this moment, this forgotten outcast woman who everyone else has left behind, forgotten about, Jesus identifies with, where he, he doesn't do this very often through the Bible. He says, I am the Christ. I am the Christ. And in this moment, this woman gives her life to Jesus. And she begins to walk with Jesus, but Jesus doesn't allow her to stay at the well. No, no, no. What he does is he sends her back into her town. Can you imagine that? Think about it. Have you ever been forgotten by a friend group? Have you ever been forgotten by uh, somebody you thought you could trust? Have you ever been called names and left behind and outcasted? Like, those are the last people you want to go around, isn't it? And Jesus equips this woman to walk back into her town not with her head, her head ducked, but in confidence because she's a new creation. And she walks into the town, and this is what happened. It's insane. John 4, 39 through 42. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. He, she says, he knew me, and he changed me. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, talking about Jesus, and Jesus stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And then they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves that we know that indeed this is the Savior of the world. See, Jesus, she, he took a forgotten woman and gave her an eternal purpose. And she goes into the town, and not only does her life change, but she changes the entire town that once forgot her, that once outcasted her, and now all of their eternities look different because of this woman's testimony. And can I just tell you that God wants to do the same thing with your story today? He's given you this power. Maybe one day you were forgotten, and you have encountered the real person of Jesus, and he's changed you. And now you have this testimony that has the power of eternal purpose. And he's saying, hey, go back into your city. Go back into that friend group. Go back into that family. Go back into that hurt relationship and tell them what I have done. Because maybe they feel forgotten. Maybe you have forgotten coworkers this Christmas season. Maybe you have forgotten neighbors. Maybe you have forgotten friends. And they, you ha I just want you to know, you have the key to unlock their eternal purpose. Because his name is Jesus. And he's at the center of your story. And his name has the power to change their eternities. Work number two, yeah, come on. Only God can do that. We're two for two. Only God can. Third one, 
happens a little bit later in, in the book of John, and John 11, and Jesus comes up to, the, comes to this place where there are people grieving and there are people mourning because Jesus' friend, one of his best friends named Lazarus has just died. And Lazarus is already sealed in a tomb. He's been dead for days. And Jesus, in this moment, comes and he falls on his knees before the tomb. And the shortest verse in all of Scripture happens, but it, one that holds so much power. It says that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He cried. He mourned the loss of his friend. Now, obviously, he is fully God, and he knows what's about to happen next. But in his humanity, he mourned. In his humanity, he mourned. Do you know why he did that? So that we can mourn. So that he can show us, hey, it's okay to cry. I've been there. I've done that. Come sit with me. Let me help you mourn. Let me help you process. Let me help you question. Let me help you gain some peace, gain some understanding, gain some comfort. He mourns so that as our God, we can look and say, Our God gets me. Even in that season, in his divinity, he mourned. Or in his humanity, he mourned. But in his divinity, he called the dead Lazarus to come out of the grave. And that's what happens in verses 43 through 44. It says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus brings life back to what is dead. He raises dead things to life. And like, I got to say, this is a textbook work of God, right? Like only God, who's the creator of life, the sustainer of life, the author of life, Jesus brings what's dead and brings it to life. Only God can do that. He raises dead things to life. And and if we could be honest, in the holiday season, there's, there's often times where like, We're walking in this season, and sometimes it's fun for other people, but for us, like, there's just a lot of mourning involved because we feel like things in our lives that maybe we expected to be different have died. Maybe a relationship that you were in has died. Maybe a friendship that you loved has died. Maybe a job that you thought was going to be awesome has died. Maybe you feel like your purpose has died. Maybe you feel like your hope has died. Maybe you even feel like your faith has died has died this Christmas season. And right now you're sitting in the place that so many people that were mourning the death of Lazarus were sitting in thinking, there's no way out of this. Can I tell you that your God, Jesus, wants to come and identify with you in your hurt, identify with you in your mourning, but also show you that there's a way to raise things back to life that you could have never expected him to do because that's the power that's in his name, three for three. Last work I want to look at. I want to examine is is the last work of Jesus' human life. See, Jesus had this friend named Judas, and Judas walked with him, but Judas also betrayed him. And I think a lot of us know what that feels like to be betrayed by friends. And Judas actually betrays him for money and hands over Jesus to to the Roman government, to, to Jewish leaders. And he's put on trial again. He's put on trial kind of full circle from the first story we look at. Now he is on trial being asked similar questions by the Jewish leaders once again. Luke 22, 70 through 71 says, so they all asked the Jewish leaders, are you the son of God? And Jesus replied, you say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony? The Jewish leaders said, we have heard it from ourselves from his own 
And so the Jewish leaders in this moment, they sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion, meaning he's going to die on a cross. And I want to take a step back and ask this question. Why would God allow it? Like, think about if you have a son right now, if you are a son right now, think about, or a daughter, or whatever, like, think about it. Why would such a good dad give up his son to die when he didn't deserve it? The reality, church, is that Jesus became the son that was forsaken so that you, can I be, you and I could be the ones that are forgiven. So Jesus, he became the son that was forsaken so that you and I could be the ones that are forgiven. He died on a cross so that we never had to, because that's what what God would do. But to be, man, to be the son of God, to be God, he couldn't, he didn't, couldn't just die, he had to defeat death, right? Because only God could defeat death. And so that's exactly what he does. Three days after being dead, Jesus rises from the grave and defeats death forever, takes sin off the throne of our hearts, and allows us to have access to putting Jesus on the throne so that we can have life. And what we need to know is that the resurrection, man, it's the ultimate proof that Jesus is the Son of God. The resurrection is the ultimate proof that Jesus is the Son of God. And what I want for us to understand is that resurrection, that resurrection power, the power that rose Lazarus from the grave, the power that rose Jesus from the grave, that power is available for us this morning. That resurrection power. See, through faith in Jesus, the Bible promises that we'll be made into a new creation, new life, fresh start, new purpose, new calling, new identity. Because Jesus is who he says he is. So that's the works. But if you've ever watched crime shows, you know how the trial works. You know that that's not the only thing that's looked at. The evidence isn't the only thing that's looked at. But also eyewitness testimony. And if you've watched trials, you know that many trials actually like the main thing that that dictates whether they're guilty or not guilty is the testimony of the eyewitnesses that were closest to the account, both on the side of people that are for the defendant and both on the side of people that are against the defendant. But they have to tell the truth. So what I want to do is I want to look at some people who were eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus. Let's see what they say about him, him being the son of God. The first thing I want to look at is the disciples and Jesus' best friends. The people who saw the the behind-the-scenes version of Jesus more than anybody. who, Who could see him when he wasn't in front of crowds. Who could see what he did, could see who he is. And there's this moment in, in, uh, in Matthew 14 when Jesus walks on the water and he calms this raging storm. And if I'm, if I'm like other disciples, I'm probably saying like, shoot, you can walk on water? Like what? You just calmed the storm. It was like lightning and now it's calm and peaceful. Like what are you doing? But his disciples' response, the first words that they say are this in Matthew 14, 33. And those in the boat worship is saying, truly you are the son of God. There's no other explanation. It's got to be you. There's another moment when Jesus, in Matthew 16, Jesus comes up to one of his disciples named Peter. And he's asking Peter, hey, who do people say that I am? You're around town. You know what people are saying. Who do they say that I am? And he says all these names. He's like, well, hold on for a second. Who do you say that I am? Peter, as an eyewitness to my life, as a best friend. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. His disciples, they know who he is. They've seen the works. 
and they can't help but believe the claim. But let's get outside of his friends for a second. Because his friends can say anything, right? Like your friend would probably lie for you. They'd say something for you. But your enemy, ooh, no, they're calling you out as quick as they can. See, the enemy of Jesus, his goal was to kill Jesus. His goal was to steal from Jesus, his ministry. And his goal is to destroy everything about Jesus. And so what he says should carry some weight. And actually, in Matthew 4, Jesus comes up to these people and he casts demons out of these people, these demons who hate Jesus, their enemy. And this is what the demons say. You are the son of God. He rebuked them, would not allow them to speak because he, they knew that he was the Christ. See, they hate him, but they can't help but acknowledge who he is. He is son of God and there is power in his name. What about God? What about the claimed father? What about the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life, the one who this is all about? What does he say about Jesus? There's this moment in Matthew 3 where Jesus is in the water getting baptized by John the Baptist. And the moment he comes out of the water, the skies open, and it says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The Father identifies his Son. There's another moment in Matthew 17 where a group of uh, disciples are up on a mountain, and and it says that Jesus was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud, God, about his Son, about Jesus, says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And then he says this, Listen to him. So not only does he acknowledge Jesus' Son, but he, he acknowledges that Jesus has the authority of God. He says, I is the son of God, and he is God. Church, the works back up the claims. The eyewitness accounts, they, they back up the claims. The empty grave, man, it backs up the claims. Surely Jesus must be the son of God. See, the claim looks to be true. And church, I want, I, want, I want to say, like, God has another claim for us today. And if Jesus is the son of God, which by everything we've looked at, it seems like he is. If he's the son of God, then he has another claim for your life today. I want to go back to that verse, John 3, 16, and maybe bring the power back into what it actually means. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you want to know what Jesus' claim for you today is? That he came so that you may have life. That's his claim. And can I tell you, through everything that he says and does, it can't help but be true. So maybe for you today, what you need to do is you need to say, hey, I was like the Jews. And I was questioning, are you the son of God? Are you who you say you are? Do you actually love me? Do you actually care for me? Does this really matter? And based off of everything we've seen, it does. And not only does it matter, it can change everything about you, your identity, your purpose, who you are, what you believe in, how you worship, your present, your past, your future. It can change everything. And through the cross, through the death of Jesus, through the person of Jesus, through faith in him, we have access to relationship with the Father and life eternal. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you so much. Gosh, I'm so grateful 
man, that your claims are not just words. I'm grateful that they're true, that your works, every work backs up the claim that you are, not, you are the son of God and that you are God, that you came so that we could have a life, so that you could die, so we never had to. Lord, I pray that, man, we would believe your claims today. We would believe your words today. And maybe there's some, there's some people in the room this morning who, maybe they were like, they're like the Jews and they looked at you and they've been asking the questions for a long time. Like, are you who you say you are? Are you the son of God? Can you actually change me? And I pray that this morning, the answer would just be yes. And they've seen your works. They've seen your claims. They've heard your testimonies. Well, I pray that the next step would be faith. So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you feel like you've never put your faith in Jesus. You've never seen him and accepted him as who he says he is, as who he's proven to be, son of God. Maybe that's the next step for you this morning. So if that's you, would you pray this prayer with me? Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you are the son of God. I believe you came for me. I believe you died on a cross for me. I believe you rose on the grave so that I could rise to new life. Jesus, I choose today to follow you now and for the rest of my days. And if that's you, something we do here is we celebrate these moments because this is the greatest decision you're ever gonna make the decision that will take you from death into life. And if that's you, I'm going to count to three. With all eyes closed and heads bowed, I just want you to raise your hand and proclaim that you believe that Jesus is Son of God. One, two, three. Yeah. Praise God. Jesus, we love you. Yeah, come on. Lord, we love you. And we are grateful that you are a God who is so near to us. I pray that it would change the way we see you this Christmas season. We would see you a son of God. We would see you for who you say you are. And it would change everything about the way we live and everything about the way we worship. We love you. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.